3: That's. Yeah. They have asked for that, really.
2: Friends are going to go the World Cup. Get over This foul, Ronaldo, is a cop.
1: Boom, 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 the foul. Boom, 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 yellow card.
0: Nah, that's actually well, a problem, I have to you to mind your language. And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Good luck. I don't throw teacups. It's not my style. I think I'd rather throw punches. What you're doing you doing down here, you're showing me, man?
4: Okay, so there are way too many teams, probably not a great one among them. Strike and terror threats loom over the tournament. And regardless of the new structure, Ireland's chances hinge to a worrying degree on having to beat Sweden in that opening game. And yet, Murph, and yet, I can't bloody wait for the start of Euro 2016.
1: <laughs> you're, really not, you're a real shill, aren't you? You really know how to sell it on. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, of course. I mean, we can put all of that to one side, can't we?
4: Yeah, well, most of it, yeah.
1: Yeah. Most of it, yeah. <laughs> yeah <no laughs> let's keep let, let's, yeah. let's get, let's get to the football side of things. <laughs> yeah. so, that, that certainly no, seems
4: to be you know, the theme, reading a lot of previews and all the rest of it all week, that the, the, big, you know, the, the biggest teams of the last eight to ten years, notably Spain and possibly Germany and Italy before that, none of them are arriving this uh, arriving to this tournament as hyped as they have been in previous times. People are waiting on France maybe to do something special. But uh, I've been enjoying the build. I've been enjoying reading lots of different yeah. articles. Barney Rone's one on... Uh, Iceland, he went over to Iceland to look at how a country with a population of 350,000 have managed to qualify for this one. I know you've been reading up on Ireland's newest superstar.
1: Yeah, um, well yeah, a brilliant piece on uh, the e by Jackie Cahill on Shane Long, uh, and in particular his sporting youth. Mm-hmm. So everyone knew that Shane Long played minor for Tipperary. Now I actually, I thought that he had played, you know, maybe one year of minor and, you, know, you did okay kind of thing, Mm. and then decided to stick with the football. But he actually played minor as a 16-year-old. So he had three years of minor left when he first met the uh, Tipperary minor team. Scored 2-1 against Cork in a Munster minor (laughs) final. And then the following year comes back, gets 2-2 also against Cork, and loses to a late goal. And then he still had another year, but he actually didn't play when he was 18 because he decided to focus on, on football. Right, so you're
4: saying he struggled to score points from long range, but... Yeah. But <laughs> going, yeah, it's At the uh,
1: 2002 All-Ireland Championships in Tullamore, Long claimed 100 metres and 250 metres hurdles titles and also won the Celtic Games under 15 80, metre, 80 metres hurdles title he was also an excellent badminton player <laughs> winning a county under 15 doubles title with local club Grange <laughs> at, at, by the time you reach the badminton it's like okay just piss off yeah. Longy. Like, how do you find the time Longy this is ridiculous P-
4: piss off Longy says yeah. Murph to Art of the striker on the eve of Tournament.
1: <laughs> but I mean I, it, that's that's ridiculous that's just greedy hmm. uh, but uh, yeah no it's actually it's a really good piece uh, talking about uh, how important his mother was and his development and all the rest and also loads of quotes from Uh, minor teammates who went on to play uh, senior hurling for Tipperary Uh, the power of them for a young chap says James Woodlock which uh, which I liked also
4: we'll have podcasts every day Monday to Friday during the tournament starting tomorrow on day one of Euro 2016. Philippe Claire on the show today to give us a sense of the excitement and trepidation, I would say, being felt by the host nation. And we'll have a non Euros chat as well. How could we not? After the incredible amount of tweets and emails we've had over the last day or so since the shocking news came in of the death of Stephen Keshi, the former Nigeria manager. He died of a heart attack at the age of 54. Keshi was one of only two people ever to win the Africa Cup of Nations as a player and a coach. But obviously, you guys know him from his part in the audio bed that we like to play in the show when he fronts up to some pretty tough questioning by today's guest, Olawushina Okaleji, who works for the BBC in Nigeria. Olawushina was brilliant when we had him on last year to give us the context around those World Cup interviews. So he's clearly the man to talk about the impact that. Kept. I actually hadn't realised quite how big a playing career. Keshi had had that he was the captain, that, and and seemingly the cap, nearly the player, nearly the manager captain of that team in '94, the Nigeria team that got to the World Cup and made it through to the second round. They only lost to Italy. Was it Zola who scored? I think Zola might have come off the bench to score a goal in that game. But either way, they lost to the team who ended up getting to the final of that tournament. So, uh, and around that time, it was thought that Nigeria were going to go on and possibly uh, win a World Cup themselves. Sometime hasn't quite happened that way, but uh, he became manager and got them back to the big time again, won their first Africa Cup of Nations for many years and had previously qualified Togo for the 20- 2006 World Cup as coach as well. So a huge figure. We'll talk to Alwashina about that. Let's get over to Marseille. Ken Early, how are you?
2: Good. How are you, Owen?
4: Well, I'm good. Are you impressed by Shane Long's sporting background? Uh yeah. <laughs> that's um, a lot of I am
2: pretty impressed. Shit hot badminton player was a phrase <laughs> yeah. that I've encountered <laughs> for the first used, time in that yeah. piece by Jackie Cahill mm-hmm. Um yeah, he uh I have to say it is the first thing that I thought about Shane Long whenever I saw him first when he was called up to the Ireland Squad was that he looked like a really good athlete. Um in a way I hesitate to say in a way that's unusual for uh Irish players, but frankly it was um <laughs> he he was kind of a cristiano ronaldo physique uh in the in that irish uh, setup so he's managed to develop a really effective playing style which i think makes the uh best of those gifts it helps that the control is a, is a little less erratic than it was i mean i was interested to read about um to read in that piece that, that long would frequently, you know, dribble past six or seven players to score, which I suppose is an experience that most guys who go on to become professional footballers have had. Um, although, uh, I never would have thought of that as being one of his, his best attributes, his, his dribbling. Um, but I suppose too good for the for the rest of them down in South Tip at the time.
4: Yeah, and it's funny. I, he he did a few interviews. Well, it was presumably one interview for the Sunday journalists that was published at the weekend in the Sunday papers, and he was talking about his development over the last, particularly over the last year or so, uh, because he accepts himself that he was incredibly raw, that he didn't have, he hadn't played, he hadn't got as close to the ten thousand hours maybe as a lot of other footballers would have had, who grew up playing just one game, and it's really in the he's added stuff over the last couple of seasons. While a lot of people are very... It, it certainly seems that Ronald Koeman doesn't shy away from taking the praise that comes his way and maybe Martin O'Neill to an extent as well. Does, the managers are given a lot of credit. But obviously Long is the one who's taking these instructions on board and a key one is just improving his whole, his whole, both his hold-up play and his timing of runs, which is kind of a connected art because he's, because he's so quick and how, because he loves the ball over the top. He used to just make that run the entire time. Which made it too obvious for defenders what he was doing, and also only gave the his teammate with the ball one option. Whereas he says now, I think particularly Coombe, and he gives some credit for for this. He's learned just that you don't have to do that every single time, and that you can actually ask a lot more questions of defenders by uh, being more selective on when you make those kind of runs.
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's great it's great to hear you know that he's kind of thinking about his game, sort of restructuring it and evolving it as time goes by. Um, I mean he's twenty nine now. Uh, you know, but at least he's kind of put it together in that sense. So, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's like, I think obviously the the kind of technical development of a player, the physical development of a player, and what you might call the cognitive development or the, uh, maybe cognitive is a little bit too medical, um, but the sort of knowing how to play the game aspect, maybe the tactical aspect, I guess I could say, um, you know, they're, they're sort of different things. I think they develop at different rates. Long has always had, uh, you know, physically, he's always been exceptional, I think, uh, as a footballer. Uh, you know, technically, he's 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 good enough. Um, but I think he needed to put together that last part in order to become sort of regularly effective at the highest level. So it's good that he's managed to do that while he's still physically in really good shape.
4: Just score a goal in the Euros, Shane. That's all we're asking. Forget it, Forget your, your badminton means nothing to us now, Shane Long. Get a goal uh, and we'll all be happy. How's Marseille treating you? Have you got a sense of the... Euros build up ahead of the England game on Saturday.
2: Oh, yeah, Marseille is very nice. Uh, is it very nice?
4: It's, it's, I've heard mixed reports over the years about Marseille. It's nice what have city. you heard? Well, well isn't there. Can it be quite rough around the edges and indeed in the middle? <laughs> rough um, all over it, basically, is what
2: you're saying. Well, I guess I suppose it can be, but, but that seems. So, like every, well, so, so
4: can Dublin, so can every. Pretty much every yeah.
2: city on. That's true. Planet Earth,
4: yeah. Um, I need to do more research in Marseille, Ken. I'm going to say I just blurted that out. I can't even well, I'm not no, even sure I mean, what I'm basing a, it on.
1: It's a port city, an industrial centre.
4: That's it, Murph. Help me out here. Uh,
1: <sighs> you know, I mean, that's that uh, that it has a reputation for being a little rough-hewn. Uh, I'm, I'm speaking just from a purely aesthetic point of view.
2: Um, well, from a, from an aesthetic point of view, I mean, it's this beautiful setting by the Mediterranean under. Um, under this blazing summer sun.
4: <laughs> so we've sun, heard wrong. <laughs> maybe by French Bronx. standards. Yeah, maybe yeah. by French standards, it's not a particularly beautiful city, but by most other standards. Well, I don't know.
2: It's not, is it maybe just people from Paris mm. uh, trying to put Marseille down? Could be it. Is, it. is it people from Paris saying, oh, you know, you don't want to go to Marseille. You know, Paris is the only city in France. You know, the people here, uh, as far as they're concerned, um, I don't know. If you if you ask people here about Paris, I'm not sure how complimentary they'd be, particularly if you were to mention Paris Saint-Germain. <laughs> A club so sad and empty that even though they've sold their soul to Qatar, they still can't win the Champions League. Not like certain other clubs. <laughs> not like certain other clubs we could talk about.
4: They still hang on to that Champions League triumph, do they, in Marseille, despite the subsequent... Mm, unpleasantness. Un- unpleasantness.
2: You're <laughs> so bloody right they it's It's still on the books, I think you'll find. Official... 1993 Champions League winners, Olympique of Marseille. Uh, I don't think anyone's ever stripped them of that. Uh, the you know the whole the bribery allegations covered French league matches. Of course, there was some doping talk later on, but <laughs> uh, but you know I mean let's not tire everyone with the same with the same brush. Sure, there may have been some bad apples right at the top of the uh, coaching and ownership staff, but that's not to say that they were necessarily fueled to that Champions League win by drugs.
4: Let's report on some sport.
2: So, yeah, um, I, I'm going to say there isn't too much evidence of Euro fever. I mean, there's a bit of bunting and all that kind of stuff. I was walking down by the by the sea here. There's a really nice walk sort of down if you go along the port and then down uh, down the coast, uh, down towards where they have the fan zone. Unfortunately, the fan zone has taken over one of the nicer areas of, of the... Um, of the town just down by the uh, prado beaches uh, and then back up to the uh, i walked back up then to the stad velodrome stad velodrome which looks great um seems to be a bit of construction still going on around it I, my my aim on was to get to the accreditation center by midday before it closed for lunch but unfortunately i was blocked by construction <laughs> ended up circumnavigating the stad in the wrong direction <laughs> and by the time i arrived there it was uh, it was just closing for lunch, so I was forced to go and have lunch myself. Uh, filet de loup de mer, and, uh, <laughs> you know, it was, it, it, was, it was civilized, it was nice. Went back, got the accreditation, walked around a bit more. Then I decided I might as well, while I've got the time, and seeing as the train is so fast, uh, nip up to Avignon to have a look at the Pope's old gaffe mm. uh, up there. And, uh, you know, sur le pont d'Avignon?
4: Of course, yeah. But just for the listeners who, for, yeah, you know, for the people who, who, who might mightn't yeah. understand the reference, not me and uh, understand it, of course. Sur
2: le pont d'Avignon is a famous old French song. You must know it, do come on. You no,
4: that, as, as I've know? said, as I've said, myself and are obviously very familiar. Of but just for some of our listeners who mightn't be as familiar,
2: you seriously don't know
4: that song? I'm gonna be honest with you, Ken. Sur le pont
2: d'Avignon, on on danse, on y danse. You must know that.
4: Simon, do you know? it? Murphy, no, know. sorry, we're getting nose all round here. You're guys. actually kidding me. You're kidding me. Yeah,
1: okay. I'm, I'm, we're, we're not, Ed. We're serious. We're deadly serious. We don't okay, know well, the song.
2: All right. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm stunned. I'm actually stunned by your ignorance. But I thought, well, I might as well go up and be sur le pont d'Avignon myself. Uh, and so I was. Uh, it's a bridge, Owen. Um, it's a bridge over the Rhone, and. You know, it's, it's. I suppose as bridges go, it's a nice bridge. It, it doesn't actually go, it doesn't actually lead anywhere. It's a bridge to nowhere. It's a bridge out to the middle of a river. Uh, it used to go across the river and all the way to a sort of castle, uh, you know, some some way distant. But uh, unfortunately, it was swept away so many times by the flooding Rhone that eventually they decided, you know what? Let's just forget this.
1: <laughs> it <laughs> is know? a nice pond, uh, Kenneth Ponts School. I'm looking at it here.
2: It's an extremely classy pont, yeah. Uh, but as I said, it's really more of a pier at this stage. Yeah, it just goes out into the middle of the river, and you can't actually go anywhere. But you uh, know, like that.
1: you've seen one bridge, you've seen them all, Ken. Until well, you see the Pont d'Avignon,
2: quite like this.
1: Exactly, that's what I'm saying. I mean, it's 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 a pretty unique looking bridge in that it doesn't join one piece of land to another piece of land. Mm. It's just a, it's just a pier, as you say. But it's very nice.
2: Uh, just by the Pope's, the Pope's Palace of Avignon. You know, where the Pope uh, briefly he decides to relocate from Rome to, uh, you know, the Rhone Valley. Uh, very nice, uh, a little spare, I suppose. Although compensating for the lack of decor with its uh, spectacular size. Um, so yeah, that was that was all for it. very interesting. But you know, as I said, not a huge amount of Euro fever. Uh, going around.
4: I'm trying to find out exactly what the filet de loup de mer is also. Ken. I, mean, I want to understand all your references here. Unfortunately, my internet has just slowed up. It appears to look like a sea bass of some description.
2: That is exactly what it is. Perfect. Aren't. That's all I need to but, know. Move on. But while, but while you call it a uh, sea bass, the French call it the wolf of the sea. <laughs> so, uh, which is, I don't know why they call it the wolf of the sea. It's, it's a very small, un. Um, um, Unlooping fish, but uh, but there you go. That's a bit of maybe a bit of marketing uh, for you. But um, so what's actually going on? Obviously, Ireland's uh, Ireland are doing an open training session uh, in Versailles. Um, teams have basically all arrived here now. Uh, France kick it off tomorrow, and a lot of the talk about the tournament still kind of is revolving around some of the non-football aspects of it. Um, I saw, for instance, Jerome. Botang. Jerome Botang is, is a guy who who keeps sort of getting dragged into this side of things. Um, he actually revealed that he's told his wife uh, not to come to the matches with their twins because he's scared of what might happen. He doesn't want them to be at the stadium. Jerome Botang was obviously one of the uh, German players who was at the Stade de France on the 13th of November last year, who ended up spending the night in the Stade de France. He's told. Uh, yeah, he's told his he doesn't want his family to be there. He he, he would feel better if they are not uh, are not watching him, which show, sort of shows uh, how some of the players at least are feeling. He also got dragged up again into this kind of political dispute in Germany. I mean, we've been talking a lot, and we will be talking to Philippe Claire about uh, what's been happening in France regarding the uh, accusations made by our councillor and Karen Benzema against Didier Deschamps, um, but. Uh, Jerome Botang has become a, a sort of—he's uh, been dragged into this sort of situation in Germany, this debate over uh, immigration, which is fairly, which is fairly bitter uh, in Germany as well. So, just the other day, um, there's a, a Christian Democrat politician called Sven Petke uh, who turned up in the parliament wearing a Jerome Botang shirt, like a national team shirt with his name and number on the back, nice. and. This was to make a point against Alexander Gowland, who is a politician for Alternative for Deutschland, which is... Alternative for Deutschland is like the right-wing anti-immigrant party, which has been growing in popularity in in recent times. And Alexander Gowland said uh, a couple of weeks ago something pretty stunning, actually, uh, which was uh, about just mentioning Jerome Boateng. He said, yeah, people like him as a football player, but they... uh, they, want, they don't want to have a Botang as their neighbor. They don't want to have a Botang as their neighbor, which, which is a sentiment which um, echoes a very famous elect, uh, electoral slogan from British politics in the 70s. Um, I mean, what, what could he possibly mean by we don't want to have a, they don't want to have a Botang as their neighbor. I mean, John Botang is, you know, uh, an exceptional sportsman. Uh he's you know a multi millionaire. Uh he's represented Bayern Munich uh on the German national team with distinction. Uh he's teetotal. Uh he's a religious guy. Uh, <laughs> so what exactly is it about Jerome Boateng that, that Gowlan thinks people wouldn't like uh as a neighbour? I mean he ended up saying I don't know him and i would never come up with the idea of denigrating his personality so why did you actually say that galvan i mean it's quite clear uh what he was referring to here and that is the uh, jerome botang's race um it's it's a stunningly racist comment uh and it's incredible to think that you know he can i mean I, you know I, I suppose i don't really know what the consequences are going to be for Garland of having said that but you know Still in there anyway. The, the point the, is, yeah, the that problem that,
4: is, the problem is, is not incredible. You know, even when you're, say, you're saying that a politician has said that, it, it should be incredible and and all the rest of it. But <laughs> not just in America, but elsewhere these days, those sort of sentiments seem to be able to creep into political this, discourse and, 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 and you know, are very, if not accepted by everybody, are, are just sort of out there, like float around.
2: The slogan back in the day was, uh, If you want an N word for a neighbor, vote Labor. Right. That was, uh, that was, in, that was from dating from the seventies in the UK. Now, um, I suppose you, you know that's not. It's it's not as though Britain itself is free of this kind of uh, feeling. I mean, you can see this big Brexit debate that's happening at the moment in, in the UK, and you can see some of the kind of uh, more atavistic uh, sentiments to come out in that debate. Um, but I don't think that any uh, any UK politician could get away with with saying that at this stage, maybe because Britain has already been through that particular stage. It's not to say that the same sentiments aren't present, encoded more subtly. I think that might be actually the case. Uh, But Sven Petke, anyway, turned up wearing this uh, shirt essentially to shame uh, Galland. He said, my son is a fan of Bayern Munich. He asked me what my parliamentary colleague Gowland has against Boateng. He says, I'm embarrassed to sit together with this man in parliament uh, it's therefore a political statement against the AFT. Um, so there you go. Yeah. Um, uh, Pearl Jerome, Boutang probably wants to concentrate on football, but keeps uh, getting involved. Yeah, and it's, uh,
4: yeah. It's understandable that he particularly having been in the side of France at night that he feels as, as he does about the, the safety concerns. What else is going on?
2: Meanwhile, more, uh, kind of more umplica- uh, uncomplicated, uh, situation generally in the world. Um, being experienced by young Marcus Rashford, uh, Marcus Rashford, whose life has been through some pretty incredible changes over the last six months, uh, on the verge of being sold by Manchester United before injuries clear his path into the first team. And now he's playing in Euro 2016 <laughs> or he's gone to year 2016. When I first went into the changing room and saw all the players' names on the back of their shirts, it just doesn't seem real. I went home and spoke to my brother about it. He didn't think it was real either. <laughs> That's what it's like until you get used to it. Um, I don't know if you've seen on you know, this new Nike ad no it kind of reminds me a little bit of what's going on with Rashford it's called the switch you haven't it's like it's not it's not so much an ad as a movie like' it's six minutes long uh, starring Cristiano Ronaldo uh, and it's basically uh, step of ad Portugal versus England international match Ronaldo has the ball uh, Ronaldo runs down the wing in in the way that he doesn't tend to do it anymore, whips over a great cross, but his momentum, see, carries him forward into the advertising hoardings and over them, as the ball goes over and we see a Portugal player putting it into the net, Ronaldo smashes into uh, this sort of kid. This is bonkers.
4: From, I'm, yeah, I'm watching it here. Yeah, so he smashes over into a kid.
2: He smashes into it and they're both sort of, uh, like, and they're kind of grabbing, they're like holding their heads so they're like, oh my God, that really hurt. And kind of blinking their eyes and, and so on and so forth. But then, next morning, uh, the alarm clocks go off, and it turns out that somehow or other they've switched places.
0: <laughs>
2: so the kid is now in the body of Cristiano Ronaldo. So he wakes up in Ronaldo's room. I recognise it's, it's actually Ronaldo's bedroom from you saw in the in the Ronaldo movie. Um, and Ronaldo wakes up in the kid's body in you know his his house wherever it is in England, and uh, they they both see what's happened, and obviously they react rather differently to. Uh, to, uh, to their, their new circumstances in life. But it sort of goes on from that point. I mean, it's it's exceptionally um, involved. It's basically, I suppose, like the movie Big. Although, I don't know. I mean, usually you wouldn't subject a, an ad, you know, a, a sportswear ad, to any kind of, you know, rigorous textual criticism. But I just don't know what's going on in this ad. Uh, I, th- I think there's some contradictions here. I mean, Ronaldo... Okay, for, let's take the case of Ronaldo first. He is now inhabiting the body of this English kid, and uh, you know why he doesn't like it at first. He's speaking a bit of Portuguese to his parents, who are like, "Oh, you know, what well, <laughs> who's been taking Chinese?" Uh, he 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 ends up then going down playing, you know, with his local team against it, and he's and he's got the football ability of Ronaldo. You know what I mean? He's like, he plays the same way as Ronaldo. He swaggers around. He takes free kicks the same way when he's fouled, he reacts with rage the same way that Ronaldo does. You know, he, he's got Ronaldo's football ability, but we see Ronaldo who is obviously being inhabited by this English kid who eventually might have, figures out how to drive his car and, you know, turns up a training and all that. And what we see essentially is that Ronaldo initially struggles to master basic technical skills like keepy uppies, uh, but within only a few short seconds, he has kind of rediscovered his old ability. And he also has the football ability of Ronaldo. So what I'm wondering is, you know, what what happened here? How come there was no diminution in footballing ability on either side? Both of them ended up being as good as Ronaldo, uh, when surely one of them should only have been as good as the kid who, let's face it, good player though he may have been, is <laughs> unlikely to be. At the same level. Mm. No, do, do you see what I'm saying on? Oh, completely yeah. Of, no, it's
4: a massive. I think that cut the corners. Yeah, I did, like, You know, I, I also I don't see. For, I still haven't seen anyone dance on a giant piano as they mm. did in Big. Yeah, I and mean, that's that's a central point. Mm, they, yeah. So that should happen.
1: Yeah. It's one of the. It's it's one of the, the the problems. Maybe one of the unforeseen problems of having a six minute long ad is that you're then subject to potential plot lines. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you limit yeah. your ad to just a 45 second hit, then it's it's kind of hard to develop a plot that could have a hole
2: in it. You know? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's look. This is the territory. You know, they they straight into this territory. You know what I mean? And and you you've got to take what comes with it. Uh, it's what I'd say. But there is something slightly Marcus Rashford like about this uh, situation. Uh, watch the ad; you'll see the the resolution that everything uh, finally comes to. It, it all works out well for uh, for both of them. And uh, you yeah, know, what can I say? A word on Slaven, um, please. Yeah, just Zlatan, obviously, um, uh, kind of in a way, maybe the most famous French player in this tournament. Um, the most famous player in France, anyway, has been doing a bunch of interviews. We, we referred to one of them the other day uh, to promote his clothing line, which is which is releasing a bunch of, um, you know, uh, re- re- releasing a new range just to coincide with the start of the Euros. But uh, one of the uh, interviews, interestingly, touched on the subject of money, and um, how much footballers make, and you know players like Zlatan in particular. Okay, let's talk about money. Says Zlatan. I think money makes things easier, but it does not give happiness. Uh, says Zlatan. Actually, apparently, money does give happiness. Um, uh, there, there was for a while a school of thought that says once you get above around um, is it sixty thousand uh, dollars, sixty thousand $60, dollars, I think, an in annual income, then any increase above that has no real discernible effect on happiness but i think later research has actually contradicted that and it turns out that in fact the more money you're making the happier you are by which uh (laughs) by which measure satan should be one of the happier people in europe uh 20 million euros says the interviewer you're making in 2015 satan says only 20 million that's what i got paid in the first six months uh i don't know if it's a lot or not I think there are players who shouldn't be in the market. It's the market that decides the prices. It's not passion for football. It's not the media. And if it's a lot, it's not my problem. What concerns me is what the market says. And the market says, this is your price. If another player earns whatever he earns, it's because I'm 10 times better than him. How do you solve it? By paying 10 times more. So, so this is a bit of a, oh, you know, I'm just getting what I, what I deserve from Zatan, um, which causes the interview to start wondering if it's, if it's moral for a player to make this much money, which Latan counters with, do you know how much tax I pay? So they say, well, you know, there was that 75% tax on high earners they were talking about bringing into France, but actually it hasn't been here for, you know, for for quite a while. And Latan says, great, are you sure? Because I can assure you that it is me who does my tax returns. I help this country a lot. What type of a president is Francois Hollande? I do more for this country than him. (laughs) So this is what Latan has say Another reason why he didn't fit in at Barcelona. Not only is he boasting about how much tax he actually pays, he sits down and apparently does his own tax returns. I don't know how that would have gone
4: Imagine that conversation. With Messi, how are those tax returns going? Those what
2: returns?
4: <laughs> Sorry? Yeah.
2: Those <Does> tax what's? <laughs> I mean, you know, the Messi trial had been on there and, and it, you know, it seems the whole defense had, uh, had rested on the fact that Lionel Messi essentially was just signing documents with a stamp. Uh, <laughs> just <laughs> whatever... Just whatever it is, put it in front of him and he'd sign it. You know, obviously he didn't read anything that he was signing. What do you think he is? Um, Zlatan, uh, a different approach. Uh, Maybe a little bit peeved about all the money he has to pay. Uh, But on the other hand, happy to pay that money if that's the price of propping up civilization as we know it.
4: Let's wrap up Ken's report on sport.
1: And Randolph. Sends it long. That's ist That's it. McCain- Shane Long. Shane Long's in behind the defense. Shane Long against Moyer. What a goal!
0: Stellung-sfehler,
1: Hector, and there's the score. The Irre führen with 1-0 in the 70. minute.
0: Magnifique.
1: Porté par a public en liesse, l'Irlande peut veut croire à l'exploit Grâce à son super sub, Shane Long. Oil- Shane Long. Boah! what a Long
4: take the lead Sport takes focus Sport takes commitment Alright well there's one man we want to talk to on the eve of Euro 2016 uh, kickoff, and that's Philippe Eau Claire Philippe are you um, are you excited have you got a bit of trepidation or anxiety based on, on the the rather problematic build up
3: um, Yes a little bit more than I had I thought that I thought that as the tournament was get was going to get closer, people will realize that uh, perhaps uh, it would be better if uh, France presented uh, as good an image of itself as possible and um that's all the social tension would ease up a bit and that doesn't really seem to be the case uh The good news is that the water is coming down in Paris finally thankfully, uh, and that we seems to have seem to have gone uh, through the worst of that uh, those terrible storms and uh flash flooding and everything, which has been really absolutely appalling for the past couple of weeks. But um, um, yes, I was hoping that um, things would go back to almost normal. Um, But there is a a certain trepidation, uh, not just in me, but I think in most of uh, my countrymen, um, wondering, you know, in a way, some of us are almost thinking, well, we hope... Uh, I'd love to be on the 10th 12th of July and know that everything happened um, peacefully, smoothly, <laughs> and that we had a great tournament. But anyway, as soon as the football starts, I'm show, we'll have a very different uh, image of the whole thing.
2: There was a big piece about um, uh, France kind of on the eve of this tournament on the BBC uh, the other day, Philippe, and um, it included a little bit where Aimé Jacquet, the manager in 1998, was telling his players before that tournament, I don't know if you realize yet how important this is and kind of really trying to focus their minds on what a big deal this would be for France to win that to win that world cup. I wonder though with this one, is it kind of important for really Europe as a whole this tournament because yeah. it's Europe Europe at the moment is is an idea which seems to be under <laughs> attack from from several angles, most notably in the country where you're currently sitting, uh, the UK.
3: Yes, indeed. Um, I entirely agree with you. Uh, I hope for sunny skies, bright attacking football, uh, England playing in the final. <laughs> this is one of the things that I'm dreaming of at the moment. Um, you're absolutely right. And also for France um, itself. And, and I think the players are aware of that. I was very struck by the uh, interview that Bakary Sanya gave at uh, the French camp yesterday. Uh, in which he he took the example of the guys of 1998. So obviously, I mean, Vakari is one of the senior players in that squad. Of course, he's 33 years of age and he will know everything. He will remember everything of what it meant then. And uh, I think it's a message that Didier Deschamps as well will have passed on to his players. And I think in some ways he's actually succeeded in doing that. There is is some trepidation uh, uh, about what's happening in the country. But I don't feel any trepidation when it comes to the national team and um, and the capacity of the players to to rise up to to their I was going to say to their duty as represent uh, as representatives of France. Um, it's probably something that Didier Deschamps has been able to instill in them, whatever Eric Cantona has to say. <laughs> and um, let's hope that this is I I don't know I get I get good vibes basically from from that camp, and and I do hope the vibes are going to uh, to to, to you know, to be felt by everybody um, in, in the end. And it, it will come from, from the players. And it, uh, it will come from the national team.
4: Yeah, that's interesting because I, I don't think Emmanuel Petit has any axe to grind with uh, Didier Deschamps that I know of. But I think we were talking to you before, Philippe, after the interview we had with Emmanuel in Dublin a few months back, uh, and he was he didn't have much confidence at all in the players doing what you're talking about now, grasping the wider implications of what this tournament is all about. I think he just was a bit felt a bit weary after the various scandals over the last sort of mm. eight or nine years. But you feel that, that is, it, is it Deschamps, is, has Deschamps got such a force of personality that he's able to instill those sort of values in the players?
3: I think, uh, yes, and it's due to um, Didier Deschamps, it's also due to the, the type of characters he's got in the team. Um, precisely, I'm thinking of, of people like, um, like Bakary Sagnar, like Laurent Koscielny, like Adil Rami as well. Um, by the way, can I can I just say one thing because I I, I have to say that um, you know you've, you you're all aware of the um, complete insane drivel that Cantona has been uh, talking um, yeah, yeah. about uh, Deschamps and racism and so forth, and as if there was some kind of plot to uh, prevent uh, players of uh, so-called uh, Arab or North African heritage to be part of the French national team. Well, Adil Rami certainly is of North African heritage. So that's this chapter closed. Um, and, um, you know, players also like Patrice Sevra, who, despite all his faults and, uh, you know, the way that he acted or didn't act in, in Naizda, is a man who has a tremendous uh, awareness of what it means to wear the, the blue jersey. Blaise Matuidi as well. Paul Pogba. This this is a different generation of players. Um, They're not tainted when I'm talking about the, the Pogbas and the Matuidis and the Cantes, They're not tainted by what happened beforehand. Um, I think they arrived with a, with a clean slate and the goodwill of people all around France. You have to see the... Um, it's quite remarkable. In 1998, it took a long time for the country to unite around this team. In fact, during the... Uh, uh, the, the group games, I think the the feeling was still pretty downcast. But uh, in the run-up to this Euro, uh, the, the games which have been played in the provinces, by the way, uh, against Cameroon uh, or against Scotland, uh, you could feel, I mean, I would say even further around this team, which is quite remarkable. And um, yes, I do think Didier Deschamps has managed to uh, to pass it, the message on to, to his players. I think also the manner in which France has been playing before the tournament has helped is very, very vibrant, very attacking, um, scoring some absolutely marvellous goals. Uh, the feeling as well that it's a tournament for, for youth. Um, uh, all of this, I think, makes me, feel, makes me feel rather optimistic about their chances and also about the chances of this tournament to mean something more than just football to the country and to Europe at large.
2: You, i uh, not to want to harp on about this um, issue, Philippe. I mean, you've, you've said obviously what you think of it. There, but well, you did—you wrote a book about Cantona mm. uh, a few years ago, "The Rebel Who Would Be King." It's, you know, you're you're pretty you're pretty familiar with him. I, w- I would say. Yep. I mean, uh, you've got a reasonable idea of how he thinks about things. If you think it is, it is so self evidently ridiculous mm. this point that he was raising about Benzema ben- and ben-, ben-, ben Arfa. Um, why do you think he? He, he said that I mean I can see why why Benzema might say it uh you know it's it's self serving in his case uh, to say that well i've I've been excluded because the yes. Deschamps uh, bowed to racist pressure as opposed to you know the the well known scandal that he was involved in. But why would why would Cantona say it if it was as as ludicrous
3: as you as you believe it is? Because it's Deschamps, it's the water carrier, is the man he's been hating ever since they were together at Marseille.
2: <laughs> does he? I mean, how, how, how does he? How can he possibly hate Deschamps that much to say something which only think, ends up making him look foolish?
3: Because because he always thought that Deschamps was the right hand man of Bernard Tapie in uh, in the dressing room, and that for Eric Cantona, Bernard Tapie is, I quote, the devil." Unquote. So therefore, and knowing that Cantona is not one to bear a grudge uh, lightly, uh, uh, when he can put the boot in, he will put the boot in. And that's that's as simple as that. The, the whole thing as well that, uh, 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 I mean, some of it was really insulting, not just to Deschamps, but to, to a number of people when he said that Deschamps was the only one to have a French name. I mean, that is just despicable. I'm sorry, this is, um, this is, there are moments where, where Eric really <laughs> gets on my whatever and that this was one of them. But it's, there is so much uh, animosity between the two and particularly from Cantona to Deschamps. You've also got to realize that <clears throat> Deschamps in many ways is the antithesis of Cantona. Uh, Deschamps is, is an establishment man and also Deschamps has won everything. Deschamps has won absolutely everything there is to win for a player. Cantona has won a number of things in England. He's won nothing with France. Deschamps is, uh, is a world champion. Deschamps has won the Champions League. Deschamps has won everything. So I, I think there's a little bit of jealousy there as well.
2: Yeah. I, I have to say um, that Cantona conforms more closely to my cliched idea of what French people are looking for <laughs> in a yes. hero, hero than Didier Deschamps.
3: Yeah, especially, and the, the funny thing as well is that Deschamps, you would think, oh, is rather stern, dual, I mean, and, but he's not a northerner, he comes from the Basque country, uh, he's a southerner, so usually they're, they're supposed to be very uh, extrovert and so forth, but there is a, a, he, the, the, there is something very calculated about it, Deschamps, he's somebody who is um, a pragmatist, uh, you're right, but we've also got in our temperament what we call the Cartesian side, the very rational, the hyper-rational side, so perhaps when you're talking about Deschamps and Cantona, you're talking about the yin and the yang of Frenchitude.
4: Yeah, it sounds uh, fair. I don't have to follow that answer, uh, Philippe, but I do, <laughs> I do want to ask you about your own view on whether or not Deschamps would have picked. Benzo, forget about the racing. We, we all know that's that's nonsense. Uh, it's quite clear <laughs> that when a player is, um, you know, being investigated for potentially being involved in an extortion slash blackmail attempt and one of his teammates involving a sex tape, that's reason enough to leave a guy out. But there seems to be a lot of suggestion that it was up to the manager alone. Benzema might still be in that squad and that maybe there was pressure on that side of things from the French Federation.
3: Yes, but possibly I wouldn't be entirely surprised. As I said, um, um, Deschamps is a pragmatist and he's quite willing to put aside what would be moral dilemmas for other people in order to make the team as strong as it can possibly be. Um, And, um, you know, he was the captain of Marseille. Let's not forget that. And Marseille was a place in which sometimes you had to keep your eyes closed. Um, so, uh, in, the, in that way, yes, I agree with you, uh, the same way that I agree that the decision not to take Ben Arfa was a purely sporting one, um, and you've only got to see which player he would have had to leave out to bring, in, bring ben, Bar- ben Arthur in to realise that it was um, very difficult for him to, to do so. Um, but if it had been left to Deschamps on his own, I think, yes, he would have taken Karim Benzema, absolutely. Because uh, in, in football terms, Valbuena was nowhere near the team. Um, obviously, his game has deteriorated um, to such an extent uh, that he's not even um, a guaranteed starter in his own club since the scandal started. So, uh, obviously, he wouldn't be... Uh, a candidate for a place in the 23, despite having a a superb record as a French international player. So that left, um, you know, the path, the motorway open for Benzema. But there have been interventions. You have to remember that um, the prime minister, Manuel Valls, uh, was very clear saying that French players had to set an example and be models and so forth. So therefore, Benzema couldn't be in. Noël Legrette, as well, the uh, chairman of the French Federation, said very much the same thing. And I think there would be, there would also have been an outcry in public opinion if Benzema had been taken. And the latest polls, because pe- people are polled for anything these days, suggest that about 80% of people opposed his being select- selected for France. So there you go.
2: Yeah, yeah. The, the other uh, question, I suppose, Philippe, is, is um, how do you think this team is going to deal with the pressure of being favourites? Because, you know, when they won the World Cup at home, they were actually... I was amazed to read the other day. We're only ranked 18th in the world at that stage. We weren't yeah. really fancy to to win, and people were sceptical about the team. But this team, I am um, I mean, I, it's clear that they've got lots of excellent players. They've got yeah. good players in every position. But I'm kind of amazed to see that they've been made favourites. You know, the, the bookies, I think, have them as favourites. Uh, all the sort of predictions, you know, the, the various riders talking about it, all seem to be picking France. And I can't help but feel that actually... Spain and Germany are much more experienced um, teams at this sort of level than this French team. And, and obviously anything can, can happen in a tournament. So it does seem as though that expectation might, uh, might create additional pressure on this team.
3: They don't seem. It doesn't seem to have got to them yet. Um, the fact that they have a, an extraordinarily easy group as well <clears throat> will certainly make things uh, much easier for them to, I mean they, they should qualify in an armchair as we say in French then the pressure will start to tell um, you said you talk about experience. Well, uh, there is experience in this French team. Um, it is actually an older team than the German team, which is the second youngest after England. So there is some experience. Uh, it's true that there aren't a number of people in that particular team who've won a number of things. I mean, if you look, um, look around, who have we got, well, Bacary there is Well, Patrice, Sevra, Yes. And then you go in midfield, um, titles won with PSG don't count. So, yes, with Pogba has won stuff with Juventus. Uh, Griezmann has won stuff with Atletico. So they, they won a few things, but nothing, you know, like uh, the guys who are in the German or in the Spanish Quite. I agree with you. I, I, think, I think people are just um, overimpressed by the uh, firepower up front that France has got which I think is by far the best of any country present at the Euro. And the fact that, you know, um, players like Coman, who is now uh, a regular for Bayern Munich, and Anthony Martial, who has been probably player of the year at, at Manchester United with David De Gea, uh, are not in the team, probably. That tells you something about the, the potential. And uh, as well as um, this wonderful... <clears throat> I'm actually starting to wonder if people will talk in the future uh, about Conte Talk about Madrid in the same tones that they were—that we are still talking about the Carre Magique, you know, in 1984. So I can understand why people are are, are very excited about this team. Um, I don't think it's getting to them yet, uh, and I think it's also completely—I uh, agree with you entirely—because we've got an appalling defence. <laughs> We've got a great keeper, but that's about it. Um, and um, we'll, we'll just be, um, you know, I think it's, it's just this idea that France will score more goals than it will concede, you know, to talk in cliches. But quite a lot more. Yes. Yeah,
4: Philippe, uh, I think um, I think we're all looking forward to the actual football starting now. We're almost there. Yes, we're almost please. there. Listen, thanks so much. We'll talk to you soon.
3: Thank you. Thanks.
4: Ken, just to go back to an earlier part of that chat when we were talking about the players being... That Deschamps being quite successful, Philippe thinks, in imparting the message to them that they're representing their country and that they can do, do a great thing. What are we actually talking about here, though? What do we, what are those these players required to do? Win the tournament, I guess, is the main thing. And I suppose don't make fools of yourselves in any way. Don't go and strike. Don't extort each other. Nobody should extort anyone in that squad at the moment or blackmail them. Don't drive 100 miles to a nightclub the night before a game as Antoine Griezmann did, uh, apparently a few years back for the under-21s. Himself and a couple of players, maybe not the night before a game, but they left camp and drove 100 miles to Paris, I assume, to a a nightclub and then drove back much of the chagrin of it. So don't do French footballery things during this French football tournament.
2: Yeah, apart from, uh, you know, la gloire. La gloire, if at all possible, uh, that would be, uh, that's really what France is looking for, I think it's always what France is looking for. Mm. Um, the problem with all those things that you mentioned is the kind of, you know, the sort of shabbiness of the Benzema thing, it's just, it's not, it's not respectable. I mean, I mean what Benzema did, I don't mean the exclusion of, Mm. of Benzema, um, you know, it's it's just not really in keeping with with France's idea of itself. I thought it was an interesting point what Philippe made about the uh, the kind of coal calculation of Deschamps also being a sort of part of what the French are all about. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I think uh, I think I think glory is really the the objective here, and by which I don't mean by which I don't mean victory necessarily. Uh, I don't think that France have to win this tournament. I think mean, they just have to. Play the game the right way and represent themselves well. Um, it's like you know what Victor Hugo, Victor Hugo, uh, Owen, Hugo said about the uh, Battle of Waterloo. Who won the Battle of Waterloo?
4: What is this? What he said?
2: Yeah, who who did Victor Hugo say won the Battle of Waterloo?
4: Murph. Well, uh,
1: the, the what's his name? The guy with uh, one arm. <laughs> what? Uh, well, of course, England the won the... The guy with one arm. Yeah, England won the Battle the of The
2: one-armed man from The Fugitive.
1: Yeah, no, it's not the one-armed battle. He only had one eye. What was his name?
2: Nelson. Nelson, oh my God. Yeah, Nelson, yeah. No, no, Nelson, no. Nelson was dead uh, 10 years by that stage. So
4: Britain, Great Britain won the Battle of Waterloo, is that what we're saying? Uh, Wellington, owned,
2: Um the, yeah, that, This is not the victory you guys said. I mean, most people would, would probably say, that, you know, Britain, Prussia, Wellington. Uh, the cold, the cold calculation of the Deschamps-like uh, Wellington defeated the uh, smouldering Gallic genius of Napoleon. Um,
1: uh, of course, Irishman be, uh, Ken. Of course, well Irish, Irishman. But um, being born in a stable does not make one a horse. Ken, I'm back. I'm back in the game. According to
2: his, his snotty, his snotty reported uh, <laughs> thing, which he may or may not have said. Who knows? Who knows whether he said it? Um, but uh, no, he, he says neither of these the real victor of the Battle of Waterloo was Cambron. And who was Cambron? Uy, uh, Cambron. I oh, know that's where, it is. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's where it is Cambron. Uh, where is Cambron? The answer is dead. Uh, he died on the day. And how did he die? Well, he was leading the you know sort of French company. Uh, and obviously at the end, they'd been outfought and outmatched. And they were uh, surrounded on all sides by the... Um, you know, English, the humorless, uh, the unsmiling faces of the English staring back at them. And the English said, won't you surrender, sir? <laughs> and uh, pointing all these cannons at him. And what did Cambron say? No. <laughs> <laughs> so he said, "Mad," Meaning, well, effectively, no. Um, so the English, with a heavy heart, were forced to uh, destroy him and all his men where they stood. And this, according to Victor Hugo, is the most heroic thing that happened on the field of Waterloo. This uh, was what, uh, this is what it's all about. Say that word and then die. What could possibly be greater? When you blast with such a word, the very thunderbolt that is destroying you, you are indeed victorious. So that's the kind of attitude I'm talking about. Can't and that. that's really what I think that's, that's what the French are looking from this team and from every team that takes the field uh, for, for France.
4: African football lost one of its greatest figures this week with the sudden death of Stephen Keshi, who, as well as coaching Nigeria to Africa Cup of Nations success and into the knockout stage of the last World Cup, was also the country's captain during their magical spell in the 1990s. We're joined on the show once again by Oluashina Okaleji. I'm delighted to say, great to chat to you again, Oluashina. But unfortunately, these are sad circumstances this week with the death of Stephen Keshi, which would have come as, uh, I presume, as a big sense of shock in Nigeria.
0: It came as a huge shock, a big surprise. Um I mean people are still trying to come to terms with the fact that um Stephen Kashi is no more. Um this is a man that is highly revered in Nigeria, across Africa. And um a man we all thought was going to live forever. We all thought um with his with his, you know, his powerful charisma, his um his wits and his um his power, we all thought um, that would never find Stephen Kershi, and it's coming at a very, very young age, at 54. Look, it's sad. A lot of people are, are really talking about him. People are talking greatly about him, and I think um, it's one of those legends and heroes that you always think is going to live forever in your face, in your heart, and forever in, in our lives, but unfortunately, he's no more.
4: We know him more recently for his role as the Nigeria manager. And we have talked to you in the past about those interviews that you had with him in the 2014 World Cup. But maybe talk to us about his impact as a player, because he seemed to be one of the first African African players to go over to Europe and to make a success over there. Maybe he paved the way for people to follow him.
0: Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have emphasised about his, um, the fact that um, they call him the godfather of exodus, of African footballers <laughs> to Europe. 'Cause he left in the mid nineteen eighties for loching in Belgium and he paved the way for a lot of them. When you go to Ghana and you look for a player called Ni Odate Lampte, Ni Odate Lamte joined Anderlecht by claiming to be Stephen Keshi's son. He had to um, he had to produce a Nigerian passport with Stephen Keshi's name as his father, you know. <laughs> and um because he needed to travel to um, to Belgium, Stephen Keshi was so powerful that he made it happen. And every interview Niyodati Lamte has granted, he would always say the reason he ended up in Europe was nothing more than Stephen Keshi's power love and affection for all of them. You know, the likes of Sunday Olise, former Nigerian manager, former Juventus player, Victor Ikeba, they all went to Loughran, and he actually paved the way for a lot of them, and he's been credited as the godfather. They call him the big boss in Nigeria, but that's where it all started, being the first man to lead the exodus of young African players to Europe. And, you know, everybody will talk about him in past tense but in nigeria they'll continue to talk to they continue to talk about him in the present tense because he lives with us his influence and his impact on nigerian african football we continue to live forever
2: you say uh, that they call him the big boss in nigeria and obviously they do in france as well because i can see the france football obituary here and it says adieu big boss why did he develop this as a as a nickname
0: well, I think the fact that um, he was so powerful, Keshi does not hold back. He will continue to... He, if he has an opinion, he will... Look, he doesn't care. He will make his opinion clear to you. He doesn't go back and say this and he will turn around and do that. He's a very open-minded person. He has a huge character. He's, um, his charisma and his wits... He has this powerful wit that whatever he wants to say, he will say it. And, you know, in Nigeria, they call him the big boss because... In the national team, he was, you know, he was considered to be the man who made the calls <laughs> back in the 90s. He would tell you, don't call that player, don't invite that player. A lot of people had that notion and that impression. But later on in life, I sat with him when he qualified Togo for the 2006 World Cup in 2005. And I said to him, why do they call you Big Boss? Why do they call you Mafia Boss in Nigeria? And he said, look, when you, are, when you become a very important figure in a team, People put the responsibility of success in your hands. You make calls and people think, oh, it's just making decisions for the coach. But that wasn't it. I was a leader. They considered me to be a leader. That's why people call him the big
4: boss. Oh, That's interesting that the nickname stems from his playing days. It wasn't even when he was a manager. I remember, wasn't it Clement Westerhoff was the name of the coach for some of those years into the, in the 1990s yeah. there when Nigeria had that great team. How did Westerhoff, uh, how was that relationship if the big boss was the captain instead of the manager?
0: Yeah, look, um, there was the big boss and there's the big manager. If you listen to <laughs> Clement Westerhoff, he has a line in life. He will always say, in Nigeria, there are 175 million coaches, but I am the only technical advisor, meaning he was the one in charge. Mm-hmm. Everyone would talk to him. He considered Keshi to be his biggest player, and um, he said um, when they were all still players, Keshi would you know, go back to 1994. When Nigeria went to the, all the way to the final in 1994, Keshi wasn't fit for that tournament. He only played two mm-hmm. matches. Um, A group match and the semi-final against Ivory Coast he started. Other games he didn't play. In the final, Keshi went to his room and told him, oh, I am fit enough to start. And he said, I am the coach. I make the calls. Keshi, we win the trophy. You lift the trophy. And Nigeria went all the way. They won the trophy. And Keshi lifted the trophy. Keshi didn't have a say in his decisions. In the 1994 World Cup, which many consider to be Nigeria's glorious moment at the World Cup, it was their maiden appearance. Keshi was the captain. Keshi only played in one game against Greece um, uh, in, 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 the, in the group phase. And if you go back and ask Westarov, did Keshi make a push to want to play? He said, of course, it would always come to me. But me and Steven, we have a good relationship. I say to him, I'm the coach, you are the captain. I make the call, you do what I say. So, you know, it, um, it's, uh, it's amazing when you listen to a man like Clemens Westarov talk um, about Keshi. He says he's the only one when they were playing football under him that showed the ability that as a leader he could also manage. And that's why he said when he won in 2013 Nations Cup for Nigeria, Clemens Vestalov said, I'm not surprised by Keshi's success. I'm only happy for him and I hope he continues to achieve. So that was Clemens Vestalov then. Mm-hmm.
2: You you have had um, you obviously would have had plenty of dealings with Stephen Keshi over the years, although you know I was a leading journalist in Nigeria. Obviously the relations between journalists and managers can sometimes get a little bit tense. Sometimes you've got to ask things that the manager would rather not to would rather not talk about. I wonder how you felt about your own um dealings with Keshi did things did, what did bad blood develop between you uh, at any point or, or how did he deal with the sort of tension that inevitably arises between a journalist uh, and, uh, and a manager?
0: Absolutely not. Um Keshi was always wary of journalists um because during his playing days they labeled him you know he was banned at a point in nigeria and people told he was just acting like he was bigger than the nation so he had that um, weariness and of course he didn't really feel comfortable around journalists but of course he would always come out to say journalists can make you and break you so he understands the role of journalists in his profession as a coach and also when he was a player but we consider um I mean, going back to your question about me and Stephen Keshi, a lot of people get it all mixed up and confused. They think that, oh, because I interview him strongly like that, maybe we have bad blood. Absolutely not. Um, we had a good working relationship. Um, I've known Keshi since the year 2000 when he was assistant manager of Nigeria. And um, we continue to enjoy a good working relationship. Every time Keshi makes a move to when, first when he went to Togo, he gave me his number. When he went to Mali, I was the first person he called. When he said, "Oh, this is my number. If you need to speak to me, I'm available on this number." You know, we we continue to enjoy that. And interestingly, when he wasn't even the coach of Nigeria, when Nigeria played the game and probably they lost the game or something, he would ring me. Why are your boys playing like this? Why are you guys not saying this? Why are they letting Mali beat us? Why are these people beating us? Look, you know, you need to say this is this cannot happen. You know, and i would say, "Hey, big boss, face your job wherever you are. Let's <laughs> let us face our own here." Yeah. And he would come and say, "No, no, no." You know, we had that relationship that sometimes when he calls me, he's talking to my wife in French and he's telling my wife, oh, look, this boy is stubborn. Give him good food and let him keep quiet. You know, <laughs> he, he, he wasn't he wasn't really a bad blood. Um, he knew quite well that I was only doing my job in the eyes of the world. I'm a journalist and I have to do my job. As a friend, we come back together after the interview, and we still chat about it. It, 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 it you know, he pats me on the back, and he says, "You're a stubborn boy, but you're still my boy," you know. And we play, we talk, and, you know, he had such a relationship with other journalists, some one or two journalists as well in Nigeria. So, um, unfortunately, I won't have him around. I mean, I'll miss him and um it's just unfortunate it's just unfortunate yeah. and um it's sad it's sad to lose Stephen gash it,
4: it would also seem sad the way it ended we haven't really talked about his managerial career but you know, he t- t- took Togo to the world cup he took nigeria to the 2014 world cup and won the fir- their uh the africa cup of nations in surprising circumstances so he had this really great managerial career but the last time we talked to you on the program Alushina, you you were describing how the attitudes towards him at that point people seemed quite angry with him in nigeria because he he'd gotten a bit too big for the job he'd eventually walked away but he was taking the nigerian fa to court and it seemed like it ended kind of badly was was that all patched up by the time he passed away was he was he did did you and nigerian football fans sort of forgive him for for that part of for that episode
0: well, I think um, his relationship with the Nigerian Football Federation ended in a bitter divorce. Um, it didn't end well. Everyone thought um, he was bigger than the nation. It was too difficult because they fired him and the president had to step in. They felt, look, people should um, have control about who they want in charge of the, um, of the job. I think when we all look at our lives in pictures or in books when we are gone or when we are still here, there's no man without his own flaws you know i've got my flaws you have yours we all have ones we all have our flaws so stephen Keshi wasn't a perfect man but he was like i said an icon i think the way it ended between him and the nigerian football federation wasn't right it wasn't nice um they owed him some money it was you know he wasn't treated fairly in my opinion i think a hero like that um, we should always mind how we treat them and that's why on social media yesterday people were critical of the nigerian football federation are saying oh you are just shedding crocodile tears you wanted him dead you wanted him gone you wanted him you know but i think it was too strong um, from some of the fans who were just visibly upset about the way he passed and the way he was treated i think he could have been treated better relationship between he and his employers could have been better i think if he had left after the world cup in in brazil a lot of people will still revere him and respect him and i think the way it ended just wasn't right for both parties. Keshi should have gone when you know he led them all the way to the second round of the World Cup. When he came back, it was you know it was as if he was forced on the Nigerian Football Federation. They didn't want him anymore, and I think that was where the problem started. And it wasn't it wasn't good. It was it was not it was not it was not the good ending we all wanted. But I think um, I spoke to him in December when he lost his wife. You know he lost his wife to cancer in December, in early December. Um, I spoke to him and we had a good chat. And then when he came home to bury his wife in January, we had a chat and I was talking to him about how he need to move on, forget about the past, just continue. He said, no, no, Shino, um, when when I finish doing, doing this with my wife, I will come back to management, but I just need to rest. And um, yeah, maybe the NFF can continue to go on and I'll continue to live my life. And don't rule me out, Shino. I'll be back as coach of Nigeria. Unfortunately, we won't see that.
4: No, well, it sounds like he left uh, the big boss left an incredible legacy. Listen, Olaushina Akaleji, always great to talk to you. Thanks so much.
0: No problem, guys. Thanks for having me. Bye.
4: Absolutely brilliant stuff from Olaushina there. I think he really got a sense across of who Stephen Keshi was. You know, you're dealing with a big figure Murph, when his nicknames are Godfather of African Exodus and mm-hmm. the Big Boss. <laughs> I like the Big Boss. <laughs> uh, both of those are pretty uh, pretty impressive. Neil Ampti, Ken. There's a there's a name I haven't heard for a number of years. Remember Neil Ampty?
2: Uh, no, we, um, we haven't heard of him for a long time. I mean, it's, it's great. He, he was pretending to be, he was traveling under a fake passport, which claimed you Stephen Keshi, so He wasn't even from Nigeria. <laughs> I mean, he was pretty sure New He was Ghanaian, right? Yeah, yeah, um, it was, yeah. And, uh, but you know, whatever had to be done. I mean, you know, Stephen Keshi, uh, Oliver Sheena there referred to the, he used the phrase mafia boss, uh. And, you know, when he fell out with Adebayor that time uh, in, in uh, when he was the Togo manager, it seemed as though part of it was to do with the fact that when Kes- Keshi would help players to organize their transfers to Europe, um, he, he would sort of help African players uh, get clubs in Europe. But uh, there was a suspicion that maybe sometimes he favored certain clubs who, who were prepared to involve Keshi on the commercial mm-hmm. side of the transaction, yeah. um, which sometimes led to disagreement with the players. But, you know, I suppose that's kind of just how you, uh, how you get things done sometimes.
4: Now, the news in the Arden camp today is that John Walters is, has not trained with the team. He's training on his own, running, stretching, getting some back rubs, massages, all, all sorts of stuff. Probably a lot more relaxing than training with the rest of the team. But I don't think John Walters is about relaxation just a few days away from the, from the start of Euro 2016. We, we need old Johnny to be fully fit again, don't we? Would you throw him in even if he was, say, 80% fit? I'd look him in the eye, Owen,
2: and I'd ask him, are you able to play this game? Because if you say no, I think I might burst into tears <laughs> and see what he said. And if he said yes, then I'd play him. And if he said no, then I'd cry. And I'd pick, uh, I suppose I'd pick somebody else.
4: You know this idea that the player is the one who knows their own body the best, which... It is true in a lot of ways, but it, mm-hmm. they're also the one, who, the ones who are going to lie to you and tell you that they know they're fit when they clearly aren't, and this is, yeah. happens all the time. Jason McIntyre admitted to doing that. Other players in every major tournament we've had, I would say, have have kind of crossed that line or have treaded Stephen that line. Stephen as we were hearing. Yeah. Uh,
2: of course I'm fit, coach. <laughs> Stick me in there, he said, uh, hobbling around the room, as though to prove his fitness. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think I do think that to an extent when you're when you're leading up to a tournament like this, there's a certain amount of anxiety as well, which contributes to players feeling a little bit more unfit than I mean, John Walters did have an injury. This is a problem. You see, he did actually have a, a proper injury and operation towards the end of the season, and hasn't really had too much time back yet. And he was speaking about it recently. He was saying that it's, it's quite common when you recover from an injury to then get secondary problems. Uh, as you complete the recovery so I think that might be what he's uh, working through at the moment so I hope he is um, I mean I hope he's fit he was, he's been one of our best players in qualifying but you know if he's not then we're just going to have to get on with it
4: We'll have more Euros build up I'm sure in our second podcast today uh, as well as talking about two of the contenders for the All-Arden Football Championships with, who get started this weekend Kerry and Donegal and our first bonus podcast Your 2016 podcast will be tomorrow Friday we'll have that out for you to well fully preview the tournament I guess and look ahead to what we're going to all be enjoying together over the next four weeks or so in the meantime thanks very much Murph
1: thank you Owen thank you Ken thanks Ken
4: thank
2: you Karen thank you Owen and we'll see you all tomorrow it's the second time it's gone oh, they, never they never got home they never got home they never got home those, those, those guys